following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, when you go into the bathroom, or maybe you have one in the living room or something, and you look into a mirror, what do you see in that mirror? You see yourself. Now, what if you were to put on a mask and look in the mirror? What would you see in the mirror now? Would you see yourself? Not really. You would be seeing a mask. Your face is covered over by a mask. And now, if someone said to you, what do you look like? And you gave them a picture of yourself wearing a mask. Would that be answering their question? No, you don't look like that. You're giving them a picture of the mask, basically. That would be silly at best. Or perhaps, if you had another intention, it would be deviously deceptive at worst. Well, the world around us, it's full of both of these things. It's full of frivolous silliness, but then also devious, wicked deception as people lie about themselves and misrepresent themselves in order to take advantage of you and me and and other people. Everything from social media filters and plastic surgery to then virtue signaling and selective reporting or deep fakes. All of these things show us in one way or another How many ways we live in a never-ending masquerade or mask party where a bunch of people get together and put on masks to entertain one another, even in anonymity, shielding who they really are. And this masquerade of the world, it's of epic proportions. It's a big old mask party. And this is a sad thing. The church, Christians... The people and the place that should be the very prime example of genuineness and transparency and sincerity all too frequently puts on a mask and joins in that wicked, hellish party. All too often, the church is filled with hypocrisy and fakeness and superficiality. But there's good news. And Christ comes bringing good news even this morning from our text. Jesus Christ, the King of glory, has not put on a mask, but taken to himself a true human nature. He's come to earth, and he has come to shut down that big old masquerade. He's shutting the party down, and he's going to usher in, in fact, he's already begun. He's ushering in a new society, his his kingdom of righteousness, bringing down the kingdom of heaven. He started it in his earthly ministry. He's continuing it today as that kingdom is extended even to the farthest bounds of the earth. And from our text this morning here in this single verse, verse 20, a particularly difficult verse, mind you, I will seek to show you that Jesus Christ condemns religious hypocrisy by demanding righteousness of heart in his kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ condemns religious hypocrisy By demanding righteousness of heart in his kingdom of heaven. 
to understand this verse. Indeed, to understand much of what Christ is going to go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount and in his teaching and preaching ministry in Galilee and Judea, we need to understand that what he says here is what's called a polemical statement. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is in Matthew 5.20, boys and girls, in our verse, Jesus is on the attack. No, no bars hold. He's taking no prisoners. He's on the attack against the scribes and the Pharisees because of their self-righteous, self-loving, self-worshipping hypocrisy. Their fake religion. Again, Jesus Christ condemns that religious hypocrisy by demanding righteousness of heart in his kingdom of heaven. We'll break this up under two headings today. First, the problem of religious hypocrisy. That is a problem of the scribes and the Pharisees that Christ is addressing in this verse and in this section here. But then secondly, the demand that he makes for heart righteousness. The demand for heart righteousness. So the problem of uh, religious hypocrisy and then the demand for heart righteousness. First, the problem of religious hypocrisy. In... As Christ mentions this problem, as he unfolds, as he presents it to us in our passage this morning, what he's doing is he's showing us who the religious hypocrites are, but then also what their particular problem is, why religious hypocrisy is a problem. So first, looking at the religious hypocrites, who are these scribes and Pharisees? What is their righteousness, which the disciples of Christ are told to then excel and even to exceed? Well, the scribes and Pharisees, very simply, were the recognized, the popularly recognized religious authorities of their day. If you were to go up to your average Galilean fisherman, if you were to go up to a tax collector, if you were to go up to a farmer or a carpenter, and you would say, hey, I have a question about the law of God. Whom should I ask? They'd say, oh, uh, well, I know this guy... Um, Joseph, he's a, he's a Pharisee. You should go ask him. He'll know. Or they'd say, oh, you need, to go to, um, you need to go to Gamaliel, the great teacher of the Pharisees. Or you need to go to our friendly neighborhood scribe who keeps the scrolls for the synagogue. These are the guys who know. It's almost like going to your pastor or your elders. I hesitate to make that connection for obvious reasons. But that's, what, that's the place that these men occupied. If you had a question about religious matters, you would go to a scribe or a Pharisee. But there's a big problem with the sect, the party, the group of the Pharisees. And that is, as Jesus is going to show us in his earthly ministry, not just in Matthew's gospel, but in Mark and in Luke and in John, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have a massive heart problem. They're self-satisfied, self-righteous legalists. That means that while everyone else thinks that they're the guys who know how to keep the law, in fact, what they're about is just making themselves look good. What do I mean? Let's look at Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus opens this up for us in... Uh, 
as he addresses the Pharisees directly. This is toward the end of his, his ministry before his crucifixion. Who's crucifying him? Well, it's actually the scribes and the Pharisees calling for it. You see there the heart problem. But this is what Jesus says. Jesus spoke to the crowds and said to his disciples. He's teaching them something about the Pharisees. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they brought in their phylacteries, that's these uh, things on their their faces and their robes, and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. So what is the problem of the Pharisees? Who are they? They're the guys that are out in front and like to be there. They're looking for the chief spots. They're getting out in front of everybody in order to bring glory to themselves. Luke, uh, in Luke's gospel, we get another look at this. In Luke 18, 11, and 12, we read this, where Jesus is telling a parable of the Pharisee and the publican. We don't have the time to go through the whole thing, but these two verses are instructive. Jesus describes a Pharisee. He says, The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. In the synagogue, in front of everybody else, or in the, in the temple, I'm sorry, in front of everyone else. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, that I'm not a swindler, unjust, an adulterer, or even like this tax collector right here. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. Who are the Pharisees? They are those who put a show of righteousness on display to those around them. That is a pharisaical party of Jesus' day. Now today, where do we see this? I think we see it most clearly in uh, something that's very popular online and, and certainly among politicians and, and other public figures. But even you and me were tempted to this, and that's virtue signaling. You know what virtue signaling is? It's when you give off a signal that you're virtuous. How do you do that? Well, you identify some kind of... Uh, issue that's trending in culture, something that everyone seems to be complaining about, and then you add your voice to the chorus. But you do it, not in secret, it's not like you're bringing the matter to the Lord for Him to address, but you put it on blast so everyone else can see you. And typically, this is a virtue signaling in favor of some supposed marginalized people group, politicians who go down to the border with Mexico. And they, they make a show of getting there, making sure all the cameras are set up, and then they start crying and screaming. And as soon as the cameras are turned off, they walk away and they go home to Manhattan or wherever it is they're from. Politicians are not the only ones guilty of this. You and I are tempted to this each and every day. Social media presents a massive temptation to this. The world is watching. What will they see? They'll see a happy, smiling, virtuous Christian not one who struggles with sin. I'm not telling you to put all your sins on display either, but just watch your heart here. Why is it that you go do what you do? Are you virtue signaling? If so, that's a Pharisee impulse. And so in the church, 
We see that in the presentation of ourselves as having it all together at all times, but then also, perhaps more pointedly in most of our experiences, you have this fundamentalistic legalism that's usually on display in church. I do this, I do that. I make sure I, I tithe and the pastor knows it. I make sure that I stay away from, you know, uh, movies and chew and girls who do and all that kind of stuff. It's the old time kind of fundamentalist uh, impulse of setting up for yourself a picture of godliness which doesn't actually get to the heart of matters of mere prohibition of certain things which may or may not be actually unlawful but for the sake of showing yourself to be this uber righteous person in reform circles i'm going to bring this all the way home to us there are two ways to keep the sabbath there's a way to keep the Sabbath from the heart, delighting in it, turning your foot from worldly employments and recreations so that you can delight in the Sabbath. And then there's a way of keeping the Sabbath where you have your list of things you're supposed to do as a Reformed person. You got a box on there that says Sabbath keeping, and you check it because you went to morning and evening worship. One gets to the heart of the matter, and then the other one is just Phariseeism. So examining ourselves, why am I going to church? Am I just going because I have to? Am I going because I want to? And so Christ is addressing those who go because they have to in order to keep up appearances. Do you, you see what I'm saying here? These are the religious hypocrites. Now, I've already talked about their problem at heart, but the problem that Christ points out here in, in verse 20 of, of Matthew 5, he says... Uh, unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, and here's the problem, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the problem with the Pharisees is that though they believed in the resurrection, though they believed that the Messiah was coming to usher in a heavenly kingdom for all time, though they had these orthodox beliefs and views over against other groups in ancient Israel at the time, yet they taught that entrance into the kingdom of heaven was secured not by any standard set by God himself, but rather was secured by their own standard, their box-checking Sabbatarianism, their artificial, hypocritical religious devotion and observance. They're being able to say in front of people, I know I'm good enough to get into the kingdom because I'm not a tax collector like that guy over there who's spilling his guts out before the Lord. This is the great problem of the Pharisees. They have a false confidence, a confidence built on their works righteousness of what they're doing to secure favor with God and even to enter into his kingdom when it comes. Well, Christ then enters into the picture and he tears down the Pharisees' legalism. Think about what his message up to this point has been. It's been a message of grace. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's bringing glad tidings. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, we're told in Matthew 4. Um, 4.23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings of the kingdom of heaven, of its arrival. And what was he doing with it? Healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, pouring out grace upon grace. That's his approach. And the Pharisees see it and they say, there's, it looks like there's power here, but he's not, he's not tying people up like we do. There's something wrong with him. Indeed, Christ comes, he tears down the Pharisees' legalism, but he doesn't 
erect a new legalism in its place. No, rather, not as a revolutionary, but as a reformer, he calls the people of Israel back to their God, back to the covenant-keeping Lord of Israel, the one who in Deuteronomy chapter 10 laid out a program for what he was doing in their midst, and that is capturing their hearts and drawing them into communion with him. He came, what are we told in Matthew 1? He came to save his people from their sins in Matthew 1, 21. This is Christ's purpose, not to lay up heavy burdens, but to save them from their sins. And so what do the Pharisees do? Well, they reject him. He's not their Messiah. He's not the one of their own making. He's not the Jesus they expected. He's the true Jesus. There's no salvation in religious hypocrisy. There's no salvation for the Pharisees unless they repent and embrace the free gift of God's grace found in Jesus Christ. There's no eternal benefit in virtue signaling. There's no lasting value in checking off boxes of some scheme of good living, however well-intentioned you might be. Indeed, the problem of the Pharisees and their religious hypocrisy, their masquerade, their show, it's a problem alive and well today, is that such a life will end in rejection and separation from the goodness of God now and forever. By no means will the Pharisees, unrepentant Pharisees, enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, what Christ is doing is he's going on the attack. He's making a polemic. He's addressing a false doctrine in that statement. That's his main thrust, his main point here. And he not only condemns religious hypocrisy, but he demands righteousness of heart paired with it. So you would be right to ask, what must I do to be saved? As the jailer will later uh, in Acts. And Christ, he sets before you a demand. But it's a gracious one. And I seek to unfold that now as we consider the demand for heart righteousness. The demand for heart righteousness. We'll look at the demand itself, but then also the heart righteousness in this demand. So notice, I don't want to jump over this. The first three words of our verse. For I say. We might translate this, for I myself say unto you. Christ comes in this statement, just as he did in verse 18, where he says, truly I say to you, he's expressing his authority. He's expressing his position, his unique position as the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18, as the king promised to David who would sit on his throne for all authority. He who opened his mouth in Matthew 5 verse 2 at the beginning of the sermon comes now with divine authority in verses 18 and 20. I myself say to you, And one of the reasons why I read the rest of the chapter is so you would hear that refrain where Jesus says, you've heard this, but I say this. He's coming with authority to correct misunderstanding. Again, he's on the attack against the Pharisees. I really want you to see that. That's the context of this verse. What he says as a prophet then, as one declaring the instruction of God and divine wisdom, he's also going to model and fulfill as a king. And that's another one of Matthew's goals, is to present Jesus Christ as a prophet and as the king of Israel. 
Remember how he's introduced in chapter 1, the son of David and son of Abraham. He fulfills the messianic hopes of Israel in his arrival, but then also throughout his life. So again and again in those first four chapters, we read this was to fulfill what was spoken of in the prophets. And we're going to see that formula later on in Matthew's gospel. But in particular connection to righteousness, I want to point out a few things that perhaps we glossed over in weeks past. First, who reared Jesus Christ? Joseph and Mary. What do we learn about Joseph in chapter 1, verse 19? Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly when he learned of Mary's pregnancy before the angel clarified to him what was going on. Jesus was reared by a righteous son of David. Jesus learned righteousness in the home. Again, he's truly God and truly man. He learned things growing up. He learned righteousness from a righteous man. And then, to put more of a point to it, in Matthew 3, when Jesus comes to be baptized, we learn that John tried to prevent him. His cousin said, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And what is Jesus' interesting answer here? He said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Those two key words, fulfill and righteousness, appear at this very important moment in Jesus' ministry and life. Then he, John, permitted him, Jesus, to be baptized. Further, as a suffering servant of Isaiah 53, we know that Jesus is indeed poor in spirit. And his is the kingdom of heaven. We know that he's hungry for righteousness and he shall be satisfied. We know that he's destined for persecution. And so his is indeed the kingdom of heaven again. He is a king and a righteous king. He possesses his kingdom with the authority of being king of heaven and earth, which is where our gospel will end in many months from now. And so the demand that Jesus makes is one that is pregnant with authority and gravitas. You cannot ignore it. We have to deal with it. And so what is he demanding? He's demanding heart righteousness. The word heart doesn't appear here, but the word surpassing does. What does righteousness surpassing that of the scribes and Pharisees look like? Well, it's unseen to us. We cannot behold it ourselves because it's in the inmost place where only the Lord can see. It's in the heart. God, as I hope you picked up in Deuteronomy chapter 10, is after the hearts of his people. He's looking to internalize his law, to bring it to the interior of our being and to inscribe it on our hearts, even as with a chisel upon rock, never to be eradicated. Old Testament witness is instructive here. We've already looked at Deuteronomy 10. But what do we know about David's life in 1 Samuel 16, 17? God does not look upon man as man does. He does not see as man sees, for God looks on the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. If we I read Psalm 119 the other day in my um, weekly Bible reading in God's providence, or daily Bible reading, and I picked up a few verses here that really strike on this theme. The psalmist says, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. I shall delight in your laws. That's a heart 
movement. My soul is crushed with longing. For what? After your ordinances at all times. And then verse 35. uh, Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it, the psalmist says. In 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. And then verse 71. He says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 115, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. And then 131, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. And 159, consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. And 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. And finally, 167 and 8, my soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Boys and girls, what do you love? What, what, what kinds of things do you like to do during the day and during the night? What do you wake up and you're excited about doing? Spending time with mom and dad, perhaps, I hope so. Playing with your brothers and your sisters and your friends. Good, excellent. But what about reading your Bible? Seeking the will of the Lord? Even wrestling with difficult passages and trying to understand what's being said or memorizing the catechism or, or rehearsing God's law and thinking about how it applies to your life. Do these things delight you? What about you, brothers and sisters? Before the children of this church, can you say in truth and sincerity, I love the law of God. I delight in it. I yearn for it. I long for it. That's what God is after in each of us. He intends to seat that affection in our hearts. That's why he draws us into this place. He puts us under his word. He teaches us to pray that we might draw close to him and delight in the revelation of who he is, which is nowhere more clearly seen than in the law and gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we see the beauty of God on full display. Jeremiah 31, which we looked at in our meditation for this worship service, speaks of setting the law in the heart. Ezekiel 11.19 and 36.26 both speak of God's intention to put, what? A new heart in you, a heart of flesh. But Ezekiel 36.27 has an interesting addendum to that. He says... To us in 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So we see the purpose here, what God is designing to do and bringing us to new life. In the Old Testament, anyway, how he presents this promise. He's bringing us to new life to do what? To follow close after him. To walk in the way of life. To delight in his law out of new and renewed hearts. If you think this is just an Old Testament doctrine, you have another thing coming, though. The testimony of the New Testament is, is conclusive in this respect as well. John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says quite emphatically, If you love me... You will keep my commandments. 
And then in 1 John 2.3, perhaps as the apostle is reflecting on Christ's words to him and to the other disciples, we read similarly, 1 John 2.3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And in 3.24, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. And then 5.3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For the heart that receives them, that has been renewed, receives them gladly. In Romans chapter 3.31, we know Paul says we do not abrogate the law, rather we establish it. But then in Romans 8, he unpacks what he means. And these, we don't have time to break it all down, but it's worth rehearsing. Paul says... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the antinomian wants to stop there. And we can stop there and we should and meditate and rejoice in salvation, full and free in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, again, by his Spirit, promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and elsewhere, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. You see, the purposes of God in this passage, to work righteousness in us that might bear fruit in our lives. And in Romans 10.10, 10, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me, became manifest by those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Where does disobedience and obstinacy come from? It comes from the heart. And how does God address this? He sends forth preachers to address the heart from his word, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And finally, Romans 13.10. Again, the great letter of justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. We read these words. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love, which is a function of the heart, is the fulfillment of the law. The righteousness here that we're describing from all of these verses, and I know I've hit you with the fire hose of Scripture this morning, but the righteousness here that Christ speaks of in Matthew 5.20 that I've connected to all these other places, it's not the imputed righteousness of justification through faith alone. 
Rather, what Jesus is talking about here is the righteousness of life belonging to those who are born again by the Spirit. It's what our confession calls in its chapter on good works, evidences of a true and lively faith. It's the sanctified fruits of a new heart. Don't get me wrong. We enter into the kingdom through faith resulting in justification. Justification is, by, is through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But we cannot enter the kingdom without the holiness expressed in the Spirit's work of sanctification when the King comes to call us home. You understand the difference? Justified through faith, and yet faith is never alone. Faith always bears with it the, um, the fruits of faith in godly, sanctified living. Justification is a once-for-all act of God in pardoning our sins and accepting us as righteous for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. But then sanctification is the Spirit's work in our lives, bearing forth the fruit of righteousness. And that's what Christ is talking about here. The Pharisees don't have that. In fact, they have neither of these things. And so the proper parallel then of Matthew 5.20 is indeed Hebrews 12, 14, where we read uh, rather forcefully, if I might add, in Hebrews 12, 14, we read this. I'll back up to verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification of without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. When the author of Hebrews writes, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, He's merely echoing what Jesus says here in attacking the Pharisees and giving a warning to his disciples. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees did not have this righteousness of life. As we see in the account of Jesus' encounter with uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the Pharisees, with all their law-keeping, all their knowledge, yet fell short in the most important thing, and that is they had not a heart after God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. And indeed, this is our great need from God. The Pharisees, the virtue signalers of their day, their supposed holiness was fake. It was skin deep. It was a mask of hypocrisy for them to gain access to a party where they were celebrated by men, but not accepted by God. And Jesus Christ, he condemns that religious hypocrisy. He demands righteousness of heart in his kingdom of heaven. The devotion of religious hypocrites, it was for their own glory. It would be as if you came here this morning, uh, boys and girls, in order to get a dollar from your parents on the way home. 
or a special treat or something. You're not in it for the Lord, but you're in it for your own benefit, your own carnal benefit, not the glory of God. The Pharisees and religious hypocrites of every stripe, they enjoy themselves. They glory in themselves. They love looking in the mirror when they put on their mask and make themselves look beautiful. They like looking at their social media and they flick on the filter to make themselves look more impressive. And they revel in these artificial prettinesses that are around them while they wear their masks. And they reject the true beauty of God. May it never be said of us. Dear ones, may it never be said of you. Rather, seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all the good things of this world that you need will be added unto you. The Lord knows what you need. Christ is going to unpack this and what true heart righteousness looks like as it bears fruit in godly living. I don't want you to misunderstand me. God comes in grace. He doesn't lay up burdens for us. He comes declaring salvation full and free in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And He graciously then works righteousness in us to bear fruit. And those two things go hand in glove together. Not to be confused, but certainly never to be divorced from one another. In fact, the one flows from the other logically. And they both come out of being united to Christ in that gift of a new heart, of a renewed heart and relationship with God through Him. And so as we conclude this study this morning, as we seek to set out in weeks to come on all this teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Matthew where He's refuting the religious hypocrites of His day, the virtue signalers, the Pharisees and the scribes, we can do so resting upon the grace of God. Trusting Him, even beseeching Him for righteousness and godliness, confident that He will finish what He has started in us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.